The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Somebody told me one time that when the children's message is the same as the sermon, sometimes they get more out of the children's message than out of the sermon. That might be the case in this instance because we want to hear that same message, but take it, unpack it. So, uh, turn with me to Matthew 5. Uh, We have been in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount now uh, for a number of weeks, coming back from our quarantine period. We were there beforehand. We have been considering the words of Jesus uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're coming to the end of Matthew 5 this morning. And uh, he ends this section on a point which we could call a high point, but nevertheless oftentimes is received by many people as a low point and a difficult word from Jesus. So uh, we want to hear his words to us this morning. So if you've got your copy of God's word there in Matthew 5, uh, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you. We thank you that you have given us life and breath this day. Breath to be able to declare your praises, to be able to pray, to be able to confess our faith. And now, Lord, we pray that as we sit under the authority of your word, as we come to the scriptures, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, move us illuminate our minds, transform our wills that we might hear the words of Jesus and so receive them as they are, the words of the sovereign King of all the earth. And so, Lord, even as we read the Scriptures this morning, may the Scriptures read us and so bring transformation in our lives. Come now, Lord, in the power of the Spirit for the hearing and the preaching of Your Word, we pray. In the name of Christ our King, amen. And now hear the word of God from Matthew 5, at verse 43 under the heading, Love your enemies. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever and ever. And so may He write its eternal truth on our hearts today. Now, I'm going to jump right into this, and let me say to you very, very clearly that this is not a difficult text to understand. It is not a difficult text to understand. What is difficult about this text is, in fact, how clear it really is. And also the clarity that this text brings to our hearts, especially on matters that we would rather leave alone 
and be left in the dark and not have attention given to them. Uh, we can't dismiss this text in the name of misunderstanding, because it's clear. And we definitely should not dismiss this text when we come under the seeking discernment of the Spirit of God on our hearts that is placing His finger upon those spots that make us say, ouch, not there. Anywhere but there and anything but that. But this text is one of those that Jesus speaks in a way that we must so clearly hear. So because the meaning of Jesus' words are so readily apparent, I think it's helpful for us to focus not so much on the how. Not so much on the how of what Jesus is saying in terms of loving our enemies, but the why. The why we should love our enemies rather than the how. Because when the why is in place, when we understand why we should love our enemies, the how falls into place. How we go about loving our enemies will have various applications in your individual lives, and there's no way in which we could uh, say meaningfully individual applications because everybody is different. So the how you go about loving your enemies will have various applications, but the why you should love your enemy is always going to be the same. So focusing on the why will direct the how in terms of loving our enemies. And before we get into the details of unpacking this text, into the why Jesus has commanded us to love our enemies, I want us to stop and just appreciate the fact that He has done so at all. So just look at it again, will you? In verse 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, love your enemies. Let us just appreciate the fact that Jesus has said this and really marvel at it for a moment. And consider it to be something of a distinguishing banner across all Christian ethics. This kind of apex of moral and ethical teaching from the Lord Jesus to love our enemies. And this emphasizes to us the fact that the Christian faith is not something that is natural, but rather something that is supernatural. Because what Jesus is saying here is not something that comes natural to us. The command to love enemy is supernatural because the Christian faith itself is supernatural. And you might be interested to know that it's usually at this particular point of Jesus' teaching that scholars of world religions love to point out the fact that all religions are the same at the end of the day. Don't you know that? They're all the exact same because they have the same controlling ethic. Love your neighbor. And if we boil all religions down to one principal ethic, they're all the same at the end of the day anyway. Love your neighbor, be kind to your enemies. Some people say that's true, but you might be intrigued to consider that. But let me give you the shortcut to the thought here that the love of enemy only makes sense if it is grounded in the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't take love enemy without the gospel and think it makes any sense if you apply it in any other worldview. It doesn't make sense. It is only in the context of a Christian worldview founded upon the gospel of Christ that the love of enemy makes any sense whatsoever. So, we can live in a modern age that says, love yourself, and we can appreciate the fact that, yes, indeed, all world religions teach love your neighbor, but it is uniquely in the Christian faith that love of enemy 
comes to us at the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so contrary to nature that the only explanation is that it is founded upon the supernatural teachings of Christ Himself and His Gospel. And because that's what the Gospel is, after all, isn't it? You understand? That is precisely what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. And in Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we who by our sins, who are naturally the enemies of God and at enmity with God, become the children of God because He loves His enemies. God loves His enemies, namely sinners. That makes sense because of what the Gospel teaches us. Because the Father has loved us in the Son, the same Son who now calls you and I to hear this Word. So, the understanding of the nature of the Gospel and the understanding of who God is within Himself is the only way to make sense of this teaching. And as a result, something is going to happen in this room or in your living room. (laughs) When you hear Jesus' words, it will directly correlate to the strength of apprehension you have about the nature of the gospel itself. How you receive Jesus' words will directly correlate to the grasp and comprehension that you have on the core of the Christian message, which is the gospel of Christ. So there is a real sense in which hearing this teaching will inevitably reveal potential deficiencies in our understandings of the gospel and reveal weaknesses of our grasp on the essential tenets of the Christian faith. Because if we have not understood the gospel, then we will hear Jesus speak these words to us, love your enemies, and then we will go on to say, yes, but, right? What about this situation or this circumstance or this type of person? We'll try to qualify what he says. We'll try to excuse ourselves out of it. And when we do that, we not only skirt the immediate teaching, but we demonstrate that we really don't understand the gospel itself. That's what's at stake actually in this text. So, now, all of that is introduction to what Jesus is saying here now. So I want us to hear what Jesus is saying under uh, four headings, okay? And I want to do that under four headings. Context, command, motivation, and application. Context, command, motivation, and application. Or a simpler way of saying that would just be the the where, what, why, and how. You think you can get that much out of one text? You certainly can. So first of all, the where. I want us to consider the context. What is it that Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount? And to do that, if you don't mind, flip back to chapter 4 and look at the end of chapter 4, particularly Matthew 4, verse 23 and following, and we will find that Jesus has begun His earthly ministry. Matthew 4, at verse 23 says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea 
and from beyond the Jordan. What you have in the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world is the power of the kingdom of God unleashed upon the world itself. As Jesus brings a ministry of reconciliation and demonstrates the power of the kingdom to a fallen world by healing disease and restoring what is broken, This world is a fallen place and Christ brings His kingdom and with it comes reconciliation and deliverance and healing and faith. And so Christ is doing this and one day, one day the final restoration will come and the kingdom will be consummated, but we're not there yet. But here we see previews of this reality that Jesus Christ has come as the embodiment of the kingdom with its power and... He is telling you this is what it looks like in your life as well. We see what it looks like in Jesus' life as He brings the power of the kingdom and influences and brings reconciliation and restoration, but it also means particular things for those who would follow Him. So at the very beginning of chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain where He sat down and His disciples came to Him. And it's essentially this that's happening. Jesus, we've heard of Your fame and we've heard of all the things that You've done. What is it, does it, what is it that it means to live in Your kingdom? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does that life look like? And when Jesus opens his mouth, he begins to teach, first of all, the Beatitudes, the blessings, but then he launches into, look, this is what it looks like to live a transformed life in the image of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like when the power of the kingdom comes upon you because you and I as Christian believers are to provide visible demonstrations of the power of the kingdom just like Jesus did, although not the same kind, of course. Jesus demonstrates the power of the kingdom with many signs and wonders. You and I demonstrate the power of the kingdom by the transformation of your life, by the Spirit of God. Jesus wants you and I If you look down to Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be a citizen of this kingdom over which I reign, then, Matthew 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. And people would have heard that and they said, well, who can possibly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? They were the professionally religious people. But Jesus, through the rest of this teaching, is exposing the fact that the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes is hypocrisy and external, not internal and genuine. So he says, you have to be more than that. And that creates a bookend that launches into six teaching blocks and we've been walking through them one at a time. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and we come to the final one. And there's another bookend at the end of chapter 5. Do you notice that? So peek again at Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the last verse of chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so he says, you must exceed this level and here is where you're reaching. And between is all these various applications. So what we see is Jesus giving this context of who is it that's in my kingdom and what is the character of their life. That's the context. Secondly, let's see what Jesus is saying. 
the command. Look again at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He originally cites what they had heard in verse 43. And as Jesus has been doing through each one of these teaching blocks, he will cite an instance from the law of God and then contradict the way that had been traditionally taught by the scribes and the Pharisees to demonstrate the fact that their righteousness is a hypocritical righteousness and false. What the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were famous for doing is taking the Old Testament. For example, Jesus is citing here from Leviticus 19, which teaches us to love our neighbor. Again, a universal ethic across world religions. Love neighbor. The problem was that the Pharisees would take that and they said, well, since God commands us to love our neighbor, doesn't the equal opposite hold true? Is there an equal opposite corollary? If we must love neighbor, we must therefore hate our enemy. It's the opposite. If this is true, this must be true. And the Pharisees were teaching that it is your obligation under divine mandate that while loving neighbor, you simultaneously hate your enemy. And Jesus is, of course, contradicting that. Now, the Pharisees would try to wiggle their way out of this whole idea of loving neighbor by saying, well, you know, who is my neighbor anyway, right? Now, the unique thing about living here is that we use the term neighbor in a broader sense, which gets closer to the way Jesus uses neighbor. But the Pharisees would say, you know, that they're not in my immediate geographic proximity. They can't really be my neighbor. And remember, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 to demonstrate the fact that neighbor is really anybody made in the image of God. But, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 that is actually more intense than the parable of the Good Samaritan was that the parable of the Good Samaritan illustrated a neighbor in need and an enemy, really, culturally speaking, in need. But Jesus is here in Matthew 5 saying, compassion is to be shown not to your enemy only in their need, but when they are intentionally pursuing evil against you. Right? Because in the Good Samaritan parable, guy was in the ditch and needed help. That was an enemy in need. In Matthew 5, he is supposing an enemy actively opposing you. And Jesus is saying, love them then, when they're being your enemies. Now, the way they would have heard this, of course, the way a Jewish person would have heard this, is when they hear Jesus say enemy, they immediately think of the Romans, who are occupying their land by force. Jesus would literally be saying to the Jews, love those oppressors who literally beat you. Love them. Seek their good. Now, as we bring that into our world, where we are not being militarily occupied, you should ask yourself the question, do I have enemies? Now, I thought about that a lot, actually, this week. And I said to myself many times, you know, I don't like to have enemies, and I don't want to have them, right? I try to be a fairly congenial chap. Enemy? I don't have enemies. But we have to remember the fact that Jesus says this. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, the devil, how much more will they criticize you who are in my household? Which means that if Jesus is criticized and opposed, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, that will necessarily follow. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is a given that there is opposition in your life in some way. And he already said it in Matthew 5, 
10, blessed are those who persecute you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The reality and experience of persecution. Paul also says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not may, but will be, he uses the word persecuted. So we should ask ourselves the question, if I experience no opposition, if I experience no hostility, am I genuinely displaying godliness in my life in a fallen world that actively opposes my moral compass? If there is zero hostility, am I being genuine? I'm not saying we go out looking for problems. But by living as light in a dark world, we naturally expose. That's why Jesus says, your salt, your light, your moral preservative, it is this way. The goal of your life, dear friend, I hope you understand this, is not to make everybody happy. The goal of your life is not to please everyone all the time because you have a higher allegiance than that. You belong to a greater kingdom than of this world. And Jesus says in Luke 6.26, Woe to you if all men speak well of you. That's a strong word. So Christians who are seeking to be sincere followers of Jesus do not find themselves embraced, appreciated, and applauded by a fallen world, and you shouldn't expect to. And our response should that, to that should not be to whine about it and claim that we're victims, but rather to do what Jesus commands here. And what do you love about Jesus most of all, I hope, is that he practices what he preaches. When upon the cross he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When in that moment they are actively his enemy and he is praying both for them and for all those who Paul teaches are the enemies of God by their sins and yet become citizens of his kingdom because God loves his enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. That's the what. But why? Why? And where's that going to come from, right? Because it's not naturally going to come from you. There are at least three motivations here that Jesus points out. The motivation, the why. First of all, look at verse 45. The character of God. The character of God is a motivation for your loving of enemies. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus is assuming a relationship that you have to the Father. So that you may be, not become, but rather be, as you are, sons of your Father. The extraordinary generosity of God's grace, His common grace, is a grace that extends even beyond the borders of His kingdom, which is why Jesus goes on to illustrate the fact that for He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God does not discriminate in His mercy to provide sun and rain. And in that we say that God is generous. Right? He's kind. He's generous and good. And we should in the same way reflect that character. You see, it's not who our enemies are. It's who our Father is. Do you see that very clearly? Jesus' rationale for this so that you can say, yeah, but this person, yeah, but this person, and he responds, it's not who your enemies are, it's who your Father is. 
So that irrespective of circumstance, your father is who he is. Circumstantially, whoever our enemies are, and whatever it is that they do to us, our father is who he is. And Jesus says, consider the character of your heavenly father. But also, consider who you are. That's another motivation for fulfilling Jesus' commands here. Consider your character as a Christian believer. Verse 45, again, he says, so that you... Christian disciple, so that you may be sons of your father. When I was in Boston for three years, the, the pastor's wife was a woman named Tammy. She was all Boston, okay? Accent and all. Thick. And every time you would leave her home, you know, she would say this to, to most people who were younger than her. She would lay it on thick and she would say this. I'll try to imitate her a little bit. She would say, remember who you belong to. And I don't know if you say that to your kids, you know, I gave you that name, you represent it well in the community, something to that extent. But she would say, remember who you belong to, Christian believer. Remember who your father is. And she would say, in a sense, be who you are. Now, why is that so important? That's so important because Jesus is not telling you to love your enemies, and so by loving your enemies, you will gain access to the kingdom of God by your works. No, no, no. He says, be who you already are. You are, by faith, a citizen of this kingdom. Now live in it in such a way and demonstrate it in this way by loving your enemies. He is saying that of us as we are in Christ, as the children of God. Or another way of thinking about it is this. Those of you who are parents or grandparents with older children, if you have ever had someone come to you and say, I knew that he was your son. I knew that she was your daughter. And have you ever received a compliment like that in terms of somebody else recognizing your posterity, you know how much that is affectionate for you, how, how tender-hearted that makes you feel, that your children should reflect you positively. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember who your Father is and so live as the children of the Heavenly Father. Or another way of thinking about that is, and I read this this past week and I thought that's far too good not to share with you, a story from the Buckingham Palace chaplain from many, many years ago when the Queen Mother was sending out Margaret and Elizabeth when they're teenage daughters out to a ball all dressed up in the carriage. The, the royal chaplain was close enough to hear the scolding of a royal mother to her princess daughters, right? And he probably shouldn't have been close enough to pay this much attention, but this is what the Queen Mother waved her finger at her daughters and said this. Remember, Royal children, royal manners. Jesus is saying, if you claim to be a child of your heavenly Father, then your character should be shaped in this way. You are the children of God. Show it by demonstrating this love. Another motivation for that, the character of God, the character of the Christian believer, but also look at verse 46. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He makes reference to the idea of reward. This is easy to love those who love you, but the pleasure of your Father's smile is upon you when you love those who do not love you back. 
Your enemies will not likely reward you, but that's not why you sought to love them in the first place. You sought to love them because you are the child of your heavenly Father. You are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, and His smile is chiefly your prize and reward. Verse 47, loving our own kind is easy. Jesus says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? The Gentiles do this. The tax collectors do this. Anybody at any social club loves those who are just like themselves. But the blessing of reward for obedience is given to the children of God who indeed fulfill Jesus' words and love their enemies. That's the why. Well, all that remains is the how and the application. And very briefly though, I want you to understand that Jesus' words commanding, not suggesting, but commanding the love of enemy are the agenda for our personal living. They are not universal guidelines for institutions, okay? This Christian ethic is not well applied to global politics and corporate organizations and all the rest. The emphasis is on individual life and ethic, not institutions. So Jesus says, you love your enemies. And how should you do it? He says, end of verse 44, pray for them. Why? Because you can't continue to exist in hostility within your own heart for someone that you're praying for. If you're genuinely committed to love them and seek their good, which is something that we actually do regularly, isn't it, in the Lord's Prayer? If you look ahead to Matthew 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts and our debtors as we seek to forgive our debtors, even when they don't come to us for forgiveness even when they don't initiate the conversation, even when they don't deserve it. And see, that's just the point. If it is a condition of obedience for Jesus' words, for deserving to be met, we have not understood the gospel. Because you and I do not deserve the grace that has been shown to us, and because we have received unmerited favor, so we extend it in Jesus' name. Instead, we seek blessing for them, Jesus says in verse 47, again, everybody else already does this, but you, it takes you going out of your way. It takes you going out of your way to do these things. So are you willing to suffer inconvenience or discomfort for the sake of obedience to Jesus? Is his word to you of such authority that you receive it and say, something's got to change here. If we do that, then we understand that we can go out of our way because the Lord Jesus went out of His way to set aside His heavenly throne and come to this world, take on our flesh, live in obedience and righteousness that you and I are required to do but fail to do and die in our place and rise so that He might give to us the supernatural power we need to live in obedience to His command in His kingdom. And so the simple question is, is, is this your King? Do you have citizenship in this kingdom? Jesus says, if you do, it looks like this. And by grace, he gives us the ability to obey. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you as well for the way in which it is driven into our hearts. 
We pray, Lord, that you would transform us and that you would do far beyond what any of us would hope to do and so to make us more like Christ, more than we could possibly imagine and so display the overwhelming love of Christ to a world that needs it. Lord, have mercy upon us and bless us as we seek to be faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.